I only really got to look at the well. I got to look at the passage during the week, but I only got a chance yesterday in, uh, when my head was in a space to be able to put together today's talk for you. Um, but within that, during the week, Les sent me a uh, a clip uh, from a particular website, which is really really helpful. And uh, we're going to watch that clip because what it does, it'll give you a, an overview of Zephaniah in five minutes. Uh, so it's a great little clip there and you'll find them on uh, the net. They have them for a whole lot of different books of the Bible. And they're really, really helpful to give you the big picture of the book that we're looking at. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to watch the first five minutes. I'm going to ha- uh, you know, show you that clip. It'll give you the overview of Zephaniah. And then I'm just going to take us in and have a look at some particular aspects of Zephaniah that I think uh, apply to you and I today as we think about that together. Uh, Zephaniah has found... Uh, in your Bibles, if you want to flick through and find it, open up. We're not going to read one passage today. We're going to read different bits as we go through, and Betty's going to do that for us, but she's going to stay in her seat, otherwise she'll be up and down like a yo-yo today. So she's just going to read it from there as we go through. All right, we're going to watch the clip first, and it'll give you a bit of a, the big picture of Zephaniah. The book of the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah lived during the final decades of the southern kingdom of Judah. It was when King Josiah had attempted to bring about real change in the land by removing idols and restoring the temple to the worship of Israel's God alone. But Israel was just too far gone. Worshipping other gods was too entrenched in the life of the people. And it ended up that Josiah's pride led him to a tragic death on the battlefield as he set Jerusalem on a collision course with Babylon. And Zephaniah, he had seen all of this coming. For years, he had been warning the leaders of Jerusalem. And this little book is a collection of his poetry summarizing his message. It's designed to have three main parts. The first focuses on the day of the Lord's judgment coming on Judah and Jerusalem. The second part is about the day of the Lord's judgment on the nations and Jerusalem again. And then the third section explores the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem on the other side of God's judgment. The first section opens with the shocking reversal of Genesis 1. So God's good, ordered world is going to descend back into disorder and darkness and chaos, becoming uninhabitable once again. And as you keep reading, you realize Zephaniah is developing all of these powerful poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All of the city's institutions for worshiping the gods of the Canaanites will be destroyed. All the leaders who perpetrated injustice, all the economic centers where crooked lending and borrowing took place, all of it will be gone along with the city's walls. Zephaniah develops these almost apocalyptic images to show the significance of what's going to happen. It all refers to a great army that is coming to take out Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting that Zephaniah never mentions whose army God's going to use to bring this judgment. Now, we know from the other prophets, Micah or Habakkuk, that it's Babylon. But Zephaniah never mentions that. And it's because he wants to highlight God's role in orchestrating the rise and fall of the city. And actually, that's what gives Zephaniah hope. Not that Jerusalem as a whole can avoid its fate. But in the closing poem of section 1, he calls on anyone in Jerusalem who would seek the Lord. And he says, these will make up the faithful remnant, the people who could be spared if they repent. In the second section, Zephaniah widens his focus to include the nations around Judah. So the Philistines or Moabites, the Ammonites, even the Assyrians. He accuses all of them of corruption and violence and arrogance. And he predicts that all of them will fall before Babylon too. 
And what's shocking is that the final people group targeted in this section are the Israelites in Jerusalem. It's like the leaders and prophets and priests of Israel are so corrupt and violent, so estranged from their God, that he doesn't even recognize them as his people anymore. And so this section ends with God's final decision. He says he's going to gather up all the nations, including Jerusalem, and pour out his burning indignation. God's justice becomes this consuming fire that devours evil from the land which is really intense. And so the following line that brings us into the final part of the book comes as a total surprise. We discover that this burning fire of divine judgment is not aimed at destroying people. Rather, its purpose is to purify the nations, including Jerusalem. So the section begins as God says that he's going to heal and transform the rebellious nations into one unified family. And that after being purified, they're going to turn from their evil and call upon the name of the Lord. These images point to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 that God would find a way to bless the nations and Jerusalem as well. The conclusion of the book focuses on the restoration of the city at the center of the nations. God's presence is there in the restored city, along with that faithful remnant that's been humbled and transformed by God's mercy. And they're called to sing and rejoice. And then in this striking image, we're told that God is a poet who wants to sing too. Your God will live among you, and he will celebrate you with songs of joy, Zephaniah says. The closing poem of the book ends with these very powerful images about God gathering up into his his family, the outcast and the poor and the broken, where he exalts them into a place of honor. And that's how the book ends. This little book of Zephaniah, it contains some of the most intense images of God's justice and love that you find anywhere in the prophets. His justice is about his passion to protect and rescue his world from the horror of human evil and violence. God won't tolerate the horrible things that humans do to each other and to his world. But he brings this justice in order to restore, in order to create a world where people can flourish in safety and peace because of his love. And so Zephaniah forces us to hold together these two aspects of God's character, his justice and his love. And he wants us to discover that together they contain the future hope of our world. And that's what the book of Zephaniah is all about. There you go. You can all go home. <laughs> it's pretty neat, isn't it? It's very quick. Uh, it takes you through all the different things, but really helpful too, isn't it, to uh, put that Zephaniah, the big picture of the book, and for us to think about how it comes together. And the two things that are striking from it, aren't they, that there is both love and justice uh, as part of who God is. Uh, if you had been uh, a few years ago, my age, one of the big films was the Blues Brothers, and the Blues Brothers taught us, didn't they, that there was two types of music, country and western. I'm not sure either of them really count, but two types of music. Well, in the Bible, there are two types of songs, God's song of justice and God's song of love. And in Zephaniah, we have both those running through it. Uh, if you had heard right back in the beginning of that little part, it says that Zephaniah is uh, a book of poetry. It's almost like a book of song. And in one sense, it's like two songs. Uh, the guys in the broke it up into three sections, uh, and, but you can almost break it up into two songs. One song of judgment from chapter 1 through to chapter 3, verse 8, 
and then a song of love from verse 9 in chapter 3 through the end of it. And that's the way we're going to look at it today, two songs that God sings uh, to us. That's what we had at the beginning, that there is a God who sings. Uh, because later on in uh, verse chapter 3, you hear that actually God sings over his people. It's quite a strange thought, isn't it? But a beautiful thought. And we'll get to that a little bit later because that's one of the striking, beautiful pictures at the end of this book. So we're going to look at it together. And as he said, Zephaniah has probably one of the starkest pictures of God's justice or judgment coming upon his people. And if we look at the minor prophets, we always need to remember that there are almost, the prophets are speaking in three sort of ways. One, that they're speaking into the immediate context uh, that we hear of God speaking to Jerusalem and to Judah and to Babylon coming to wipe them out. Then there is the intermediate one where he's talking about in regards to when Jesus comes and brings about a certain part of that too when we find out a little bit later. But then there's also the ultimate one when he's talking about being in eternity. And we're going to see those three played out as well. And we're going to think a little bit more for us today, a bit more about the intermediate, about where we sit from after Jesus to us now and how it relates to you and I. And we're going to be thinking about the ultimate as well. Uh, you're going to see that as we go through here, there's those two things running through, justice and love. Love and justice, the two songs that God sings to us. So let's have a look at the first uh, couple of verses, and Betty's going to read them for us. We're going to look at verses 2 through 3. Only two verses, Betty, to start with. If you could read those for us. Warning, warning of coming destruction. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's pretty devastating, isn't it? There's not a whole lot of light in amongst this passage. God is saying he's going to sweep everything away. It's almost like he's got this big broom. He's going to go shunk and get rid of everything that is there. He's going to take away all the rubbish, all the evil, every aspect across all of creation is going to be swept away. Uh, rubbish here, people there, their animals. And in the, if you saw in the, past, in the outline that the guys gave, it's almost like a going back of creation. It's almost removing it back behind us and so taking out everything and uncreation in one sense, that God's going to be doing. He's going to be bringing this justice, his judgment upon this evil earth. I remember last week we looked at that, didn't we? And we saw that there is a great comfort in knowing that God will deal with evil because evil will one day be forced to face up to it, won't it? The judgment will come. And we want that to happen. But it also means that it comes for us too. So God's got like this big broom. He's going to sweep through and take everything out. He's going to remove it all. And Zephaniah tells us that there's two main reasons for that. One that is on a world scale and then one that is particularly for Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, Betty, if you could read verse 17 for us. 1.17. Or you can look at the screen and read it whichever way you find easier. Yeah, 1 verse 17. Chapter 1 verse 17. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. 
there's the answer why God's going to bring this. Because people have sinned against him. So often we think of evil, don't we? We think that it's against someone else or it's against another person or when we do something wrong that it's actually against the person that we've done it wrong. And that is true and that is real but it is also ultimately against God. When we rebel and want to live our lives our way and do things selfishly, pridefully, for ourselves, that is ultimately us sticking our finger up at God and telling him, no, I don't want you to rule my life. I want to rule it my way. I'm actually sinning against God. My sin is ultimately against him. Romans 3.23 says to us, doesn't for, for the wages of sin is death. Oh, that's not the one. It says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, no one sitting here this morning can say that you're perfect, can you? Some of you might think you're close, but you're not, eh? None of us are really close at all. None of us. All of us have been impacted by this. Every human being in the world is impacted by this. So everyone in the human being in the world deserves to be swept away. Hebrews 9.27 says that man or humans are destined to die once and to face judgment. Everyone, everywhere, has to, at one point in time, will have to stand before God. And it's pretty dark when you look at it from that perspective, isn't it? The picture in Zephaniah chapter 1 is like that. It's like black. There's not much hope in chapter 1. But the good news is that chapter 1 isn't the end. There's more to come. But Zephaniah wants to say, this is pretty tragic, guys. Very tragic. And he says there's another reason why this is going to happen to you. Because everyone everywhere, all the nations, everyone have sinned against God. But he says for the people of God, Judah, Jerusalem, the people who actually know about God, he says there's a warning here for you as well. Look at what he says in verse 4, Betty, to verse 6. If you read chapter 1, verse 4 to verse 6. I'm keeping her on her toes, aren't I? I will stretch out my hand against Judah, and against all who live in Jerusalem, I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal, the names of the pagan and the idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, and who also swear by Moloch, those who turn back from following the Lord, and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. And just quickly, because of verse 12, can you go look across to there? At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, neither good nor bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. Complacency, isn't it? For the people who follow God, who have God as they're supposed to be the ruler of their nation, they're supposed to be the ones who know what's right. 
God says to them, for your complacency, a broom is coming. Saying like, it's like, isn't it? You want to have your foot in either camp, on either side of the line. You want to put your foot on this side. Oh, yep, I'm going, I want to have all the benefits of a God, but I'm going to put my foot on this side because I want all the benefits of what's out there as well. He says, those who want to look into the horoscopes and into the stars and think about what God's saying to us, but then I want to have my foot planted in the God who's created all the stars. I want to bow down to those other gods who are out there. Molech, I want to praise God and all those things. I want all that, but I want to have my other foot as well. It's like hedging their bets, aren't they? They're saying, well, I want to know about this God here. I want to hold on to that part, but I want to try out all this other stuff. These other things here might be able to satisfy. These other things here might be the way that I can be right. There's other things over here. And that's a bit like us sometimes, isn't it? Say, oh, we're Christians, we believe and trust in Jesus, but ah! I'm going to keep my foot on the other side here just in case. I'm going to hedge my bets. Now, you know, Jesus, yeah, well, he's real, but I'm going to hedge my bets and I'm going to just going to live my life this way. I'm going to keep going for all the things over here. Whereas God says, if I'm going to put my foot on either side, he says, no way. Don't straddle the fence. Straddling the fence is very painful. You can't have your foot on either side. You've got to be one side. Don't hedge your bets. Because hedging them is going to put you in the danger of being swept away. It's a good challenge for us, isn't it? Do you think you're hedging your bets? Do you think you've got one foot in either camp? You think, yeah, 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 this Christian stuff, this Jesus stuff, I like it, but ah, this other stuff over here on the other side of the world, I quite like that too. I don't want to live my life this way. You know, look, I really do think that I need to get the best house I can get here. I need to get all these things over here. I need to go for all these things over this side. No, no, no. God says you've got to be firmly planted on his side and his side only. It's a dangerous place standing on the fence. But within that, in chapter 2, in the middle of all this black and darkness, God just shines a little light. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, please, Betty. Gather together, gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives, and that day sweeps on like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. There's a little bit of hope, God says, doesn't he? In the middle of this blackness, he says, but turn to me. Come back to me. Humble yourself. Don't think you've got it all sorted out. Don't have your feet straddled. Don't hedge your bets. Come over to me. And if you come over to me, then there will be shelter. There will be safety. The broom that's going to come sweep through, you'll be safe over here. Humble yourself. Seek me. Stand with me and you'll be safe. Uh, who knows what this is? Hannah, what's happening there? Yeah, the footy show. Those who watch the footy show, I know it's not the most edifying program at some places, but this is a really funny part of the show. What they do is they've got this container and inside this container is absolutely pitch black. You cannot see anything in it. 
and then they put people inside and they've got these different things around, uh, places where you can put your hand in, sometimes they throw things at them. Uh, what you can see is the infrared camera that's looking into it that can actually see inside the darkness. And so you watch them and it absolutely scares the biggest footballers, the strongest, most toughest guys, when they're in there, they crumble. They go to water. They squeal and they screech and they try and cuddle each other when they put their hands in things. Because when you're in the middle of darkness, complete pitch black darkness, it's scary, isn't it? It is a horrible place to be. You don't want to be there. And in this pitch black darkness of Zephaniah chapter 1 to 2, God is saying you don't want to be in that situation. You don't want to be there. It is scary. And so in the end of it, he gives us a glimmer of light. At the end of the tunnel, we see that there is something that could possibly be there. That hope, he says, humble yourself, come to me, seek me. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. We glimmer, we can just see it, but it still looks really pitch black. And then at the pitch black, when you're looking at it, suddenly you feel this intense heat from behind you as well in Zephaniah. And it's not a heater. In Zephaniah, there's like this raging fire that's about to come through. Betty, can you read chapter 3, verse 8 for us, please? I have cut off nations, their strongholds are demolished. I have left their streets deserted, with no one passing through. Their cities are destroyed. No Is that three, verse eight? Pardon? Go, chapter three, verse eight. Sorry, Betty. You've gone a little bit earlier for me. Yeah, sorry. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then will I purify the lips of the people. That'll be fine, that's fine. That yeah, stop there. There's that picture, isn't there? That it's dark, it's a scary place, but then there's this huge fire that's about to come through as well that's going to wipe out everything that is evil. It's a scary song, isn't it? It's a very, very scary song, the first part of Zephaniah. This fire is going to come through, but then the good news is as this fire comes through, we get chapter 3, verse 9. The hope that we've been hoping for. The light at the end of the tunnel bursts open into glorious light. Have a look at verse 9. Betty? Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. 
It's a picture of purification, isn't it? That's what the guys in the pictures is, isn't it? As you come through this judgment, come out, and then suddenly we see the fire actually is going to purify the world from all evil. And God is going to gather together all his people together. His holy ones will be brought together in his place together to worship him and to praise him. Uh, the picture there is that like of that smelting sense. You know, when you see the smelt where they uh, put... Uh, iron or gold uh, when it's got all the impurities in it they heat it up to an intense heat and then out of it comes the pure gold the purified metal the one that has been right everything that is impure has been removed and only purity is there that's the picture of Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 9 that, that as this fire comes through only the pure will come out the other side and who is that? Well, it's none of us by ourselves, is it? We will not get through the purification process by ourselves. But there is one that does it for us, isn't there? We looked at this last week, didn't we? The cross. At the cross, God's love and justice meets. His purification process happens as God's wrath is poured out. His fire, his all-consuming fire is poured out on his Son... And then on the other side of it, we are kept safe. We won't be purified in a sense by fire, but we'll be purified by the water, won't we? When we get to the New Testament, we see that in Jesus, we are made right with God. And the baptism that is a water sense is a clearing and purifying of our hearts and our souls. That is done by Jesus. We don't experience the fire, we experience the water. We experience the Spirit that is poured out into our hearts and into our lives. We don't take God's anger, but we experience God's love forever and eternally. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? When you get to verse 9, you think, I want that picture. And it's going to get better as we look further on. And in the New Testament, we find out we get that picture when we stand with Jesus, when we put our trust in him. That is God's way to bring about his remnant, is the word that he uses in Zephaniah. And he calls his people to himself, and he calls his people to himself through Jesus. And that's the love song that we get from verse 9 onwards. Now, not only we've heard the darkness, haven't we? The song of judgment in chapter 1 through to 3, verse 8, and then chapter 3, verse 9 onwards, we get a love song from God to us. And it is a beautiful picture when you look at this. Uh, what God is saying, this is what it's going to be like in eternity. He's giving us a picture of what it's going to be like with him forever. And look at what he says. If you could read verse 12 and 13 for us, Betty. But I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? A place where we are safe, secure, in loving, perfect relationships with each other forever. Isn't it a lovely picture to think that we can be in relationship with one another and we won't hurt each other? 
in relationships with one another where we will speak the truth in love to one another, where we won't lie and we won't be deceitful and we won't cover up and we won't keep from behind, but we'll actually be open and honest and caring and sharing and loving one another. We won't feel inferior. We won't feel better than anyone else. Pride will be removed. Humility will be uplifted. A place where you and I will be the perfect people that we are and we will treat each other perfectly. That is a beautiful picture, isn't it? If you think of all the things that are going on in the world today, there is some horrible stuff going on, but the hardest things that happen is when we have broken relationships with each other, when we grate with one another, when we hurt one another, when we scratch against one another. Here is a picture of perfect relationships with each other. No longer will we need to feel inferior to anyone else. No longer will we need to fear. That's what it says in verse 13. I'll read this one, Fatty, if you like. They will eat and lie down and no one will make them afraid. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Removing of fear. What does the New Testament say? Perfect love drives out all fear. That's going to be eternity for those that know Jesus. No fear ever again. Absolutely. We fear, don't we? We fear that we're going to hurt someone. We fear someone's going to hurt us. We fear that we're not going to be like. We fear that we're not going to be uh, more powerful. We fear that we're not going to be getting the things that we think that we're going to get. We fear that we're going to be uh, unsuccessful, that we're going to be failures. We fear and all this stuff drives us, don't we? We're driven by fear in so many ways. We fear that our life isn't going to be the way that it should be. But yet here in this perfection, there'll be no fear. There's a T-shirt that you'll hear uh, see around the place that has no fear. It's a very popular brand. It's not that one. But I reckon that's one that us Christians will be able to wear, won't it? The cross, Jesus, declares that we have no fear. That we will have no fear. Now that's tough here now, isn't it? Because we're not there yet. We're not at that point where that's going to be completely driven away. But we do live as people who are the other side of the cross. We do live as people who have the spirit within us. And we do live as people who are to get a glimpse of what that perfection looks like as we live in a loving community together. As we live in a community that is saturating our lives with Jesus and saturating our community with Jesus, we should get glimpses of this. Glimpses of where there is no lies and no hurt and no fear. Glimpses of where we are able to love one another and speak the truth in love and share that with one another. We should be seeing glimpses of that amongst us. And when we get those glimpses, 
That should drive us to look forward to even more that eternity where that's going to be a reality for us forever. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Uh, those who remember Maureen from, uh, from Wardell, uh, Maureen Sutherland. Now, Maureen was a beautiful, godly lady who was crippled with arthritis, who was in pain, I reckon, 99% of the time, but who prayed diligently, who loved unselfishly, who wanted this passage as her passage for her funeral. And Maureen died within a few years that I was here, and I only got to know her very, for a very short period of time. But she said, Paul, I want Zephaniah as my passage for my funeral. I thought, what? <laughs> Zephaniah? I think in my whole time at Bible college, it was only mentioned once in a background reading somewhere. You want Zephaniah? And then when I read Zephaniah, verses 9 through to the end, verse 20, I thought, oh, I know why you want this, Maureen. Because this passage speaks of a place where she'll be in no more pain. A place where she'll be in perfection. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, in every aspect. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a picture that we want. It's a picture that God provides to us in Jesus. And it says to us, doesn't it, to rejoice over this. Uh, if you read through the passage, it says to go crazy and rejoice, to shout aloud, to pray, proclaim it to the nations, to jump up and down, to rejoice in how this, that this song is to be our song. When was the last time you went crazy and shouted that out? Well, let me encourage you to do it. Go crazy. You know, the Bible doesn't hold back on the emotion of expressing just how great it is to know that this is our eternity in Jesus. To praise God for it. Presbyterians have been known for having their hands in their pockets and not to get too excited, guys. But that's not the picture in the Bible, guys, is it? Whenever you hear about the wonderful truths of God, it says, gather and shout it. Jump up and down. Praise God for what he has done in your life. Because it's not just what he wants to do, wants us to do, but that's what he does. Look at what it says later on, that God rejoices and sings and delights over you. God gets excited over you. That's probably a bit hard to work out sometimes, isn't it? Over me? Why does God get excited over me? He does. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? He talks about that he sings over us. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. That's why we sang that song at the beginning. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. The God of all creation singing over you. Imagine that. That is a crazy thought, isn't it? I bet you he sings better than me. And you. And everything and anything else you have ever heard before. God delights over you. God sings over you. God's love for you is he rejoices over you. That is a wonderful picture, isn't it? 
It's hard to gather sometimes what eternity is going to look like. It's hard to sort of put it in. The Bible uses all this picture language. to do, But whatever it is, it's going to blow your mind. The best that you can possibly think of on this world will be like a thousand times better. That's what Zephaniah is saying to us. This can be yours if you shelter in me. You trust in Jesus. This is all yours. Zephaniah, two great songs. A song of judgment and justice, but also a song of love. pray this morning that you heed God's song of judgment so that you'll hear God's song of love now and for all eternity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we may not have ever looked at Zephaniah before. You may not even realise that it was part of your Bible, part of your word. But Lord, within it, we uh, gather such amazing truths of who you are. A God of justice and a God of love. A God who reaches out to us in the middle of our darkness and our bleakness. And gives us hope gives us a light at the end of the tunnel that will just explode into the greatest and most glorious light we have ever seen. In Zephaniah, Lord, we see a picture that leads us directly to Jesus. We see the hope, our eternity, our life now and forever wrapped up Jesus, who purifies us, who shelters us, who brings us into your family and your eternity forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your spirit within us to bring that truth home into our hearts and into our souls and into our lives, Lord. We pray this morning, Lord, that we won't be people who are hedging our bets, who will be standing with our feet in either camp, but we will jump completely and wholly into you, Lord. And when we do that, Lord, we will be able to sing and dance and rejoice and shout aloud how wonderful you are. And that, Lord, we will experience and know that you are delighting and rejoicing and singing your love over us now and forever. Lord, may that lift our hearts. May that lift our lives. May that lift all of us, everything within us, to live lives of praise and glory to you. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.